0: Bushkin.
1: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and they handled them all in one place with the Chase Mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at tmobilecom
0: slash now. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Until Monday of this week, it was lawful in more than half of the U.S. states to fire an employee for being gay, bisexual, or transgender. That is no longer true. The Supreme Court has now ruled that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits employment discrimination because of sex, protects such workers. To discuss this landmark case, we're joined by Professor Bill Eskridge. Bill is quite literally the perfect guest to discuss these topics. He's a professor at Yale Law School. He's a pioneer in the study and the teaching of gay rights law. And he spent much of his career focusing on the interpretation of statutes. He's also the author of a forthcoming book, Marriage Equality, From Outlaws to In-Laws. Bill, thank you so much for being here this morning. It's very rare for there to be an exactly ideal guest in response to an important news story. But in the wake of the Supreme Court's landmark decision on anti-discrimination law for gay and transgender people, um, I knew you were the exact guest because not only are you a pioneer in the law of gay rights, you're also one of our leading experts in statutory interpretation. So literally the two topics of the moment are both squarely within the domain of your expertise. So I guess I want to start by saying, Congratulations. You must be feeling happy about the decision in Bostock against Clayton County.
3: Uh, That probably understates it. Very surprised it was six to three. Not at all surprised that if we won, as we did, it would be a textualist opinion. I've been saying this for two years. The cases have been coming for two years. My mantra to all the LGBT groups that would listen to me is that we need to understand thoroughly the text and structure, as well as the precedents surrounding Title VII. And I think Justice Gorsuch got it. So great for the Supreme
0: Court. And maybe great for the country, too, and for gay and transgender people. Let's start with a little bit of background history here on why the decision was a surprise to many. How long has it been since people in the gay rights movement have been arguing that Title VII, which prohibits discrimination because of sex, properly interpreted ought to also include within that discrimination against gay and lesbian people or against transgender people?
3: Well, for most of my lifetime, uh, LGBTQ people didn't even dare come out as gay or lesbian or whatnot at work. So there were not a lot of arguments for most of my lifetime. I would say in the 1990s, The argument becomes prominent because by the 1990s, there were a lot of LGBT and increasingly Q people who were out of the workplace. And then the Bayer and Lewin case in Hawaii said that if you exclude from marriage a woman because she's marrying a woman rather than marrying a man, well, that's sex discrimination in the same way that it's race discrimination if you exclude a white woman from marriage because she's marrying a black man. And so the confluence of both the social uh, factors and this legal development in Bayer and Lewin generated a lot of talk within the LGBTQ and academic communities.
0: So this has been an argument that's been going on by a conservative measure for 30 years.
3: As many as 30 years.
0: From the perspective of someone who's not a lawyer, it might seem kind of weird that a right to have sex as a gay person was decided by the Supreme Court in the early 2000s, that a right to gay marriage was decided by the Supreme Court in the middle of the 2010s. And yet it took until 2020 to achieve something that one might have imagined, at least as a non-lawyer, was more obvious, namely a statutory right not to be discriminated against in the workplace. Lawyers know that the difference has something to do with a constitutional decision, which all the Supreme Court's gay rights decisions until now of great consequence had been, and a decision interpreting federal law, which is what this case was. Why do you think it took longer for the Supreme Court to reach this conclusion with respect to a federal statute than it did with respect to the Constitution?
3: Well, unfortunately, that's an easy one to answer, and that is that the whole gay marriage issue arose uh, again in the 1990s. There'd been some gay marriage cases in the 70s, and they'd all lost. In the 1990s, there was a revival of interest. I actually was the attorney in the first case, one in D.C., and then the Hawaii case, which was also unsuccessful but got a lot of good publicity, uh, was also in the mid-1990s. And Once marriage got on the horizon, both as an aspiration for the LGBTQ movement and as something to react to, the marriage issue sort of sucked up most of the oxygen. So the sex discrimination argument was there. It was made in the Vermont case in 1999, was made in the Massachusetts case in 2003, and some of the subsequent cases. But judges were afraid to pick up on it because of the negative reaction to Bayer and Lewin, the Hawaii case in 1993. And so the argument sort of existed in the ether, but judges and even attorneys were afraid to raise it because it did sound orthogonal to the basic equality arguments that we were making in cases like Romer versus Evans in 1996, Lawrence versus Texas, the sodomy case in 2003, and even Windsor uh, and the United States, the defensive marriage act case that was decided in 2013, followed, as you know, by Obergefell, the marriage case.
0: It seems on the surface, again, to a non-lawyer, if I can pretend to be one for a minute, if I can try to unlearn what I learned in law school, they're both about equality. The marriage equality argument was an argument for equal treatment. The anti-discrimination argument is an argument for equal treatment. Why was it that for political reasons or complex jurisprudential reasons, the one argument, the marriage equality argument, was not only pushed, but was successful with Justice Kennedy uh, himself, a Republican appointee, making the relevant crucial decisions along the way, writing them. But the equality argument in the context of equal treatment in the workplace, anti-discrimination law, wasn't successful.
3: Well, I I think it's actually easy to understand in retrospect. And that is that the average gay-friendly straight person literally could not understand the argument. And I think lawyers had a harder time than others because lawyers love symmetry. So if you make an equal protection argument to a lawyer or to a judge, and you say this group, uh, Roman Catholics, are discriminated against because of their religion, there is a perfect correlation in your mind between the classification, religion, and the group Catholics. If women are being excluded because of their sex... You can understand that, whether you're in favor of striking it down or not, because the group, the class, matches up perfectly to the classification. For LGBT claims under the sex discrimination argument, the classification, sex, did not seem to match up with the group, lesbians, gay men, and bisexuals, uh, in the minds of many judges. Almost 20 years ago... I was at a conference where there was a Supreme Court justice present, and I and another judge made a presentation of the sex discrimination argument almost 20 years ago. Uh And this judge was, you know, gay-friendly, fine. And we explained the argument, and the judge says, no, 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 that doesn't make sense to me. And I said, no, it's like Loving versus Virginia.
0: Just to remind people, Loving against Virginia is... The case in which the Supreme Court held that it was unconstitutional for the state to prohibit black and white people from being married in Virginia.
3: Exactly. And the argument was, if you prohibit a woman from a white woman from marrying a black man, the variable, the classification that changes the result is the race either of the woman or of the spouse. We were making that argument and it took three lengthy explanations by the law professor before the judge even understood it, a liberal judge, and then just, oh, I finally now get it, well, no one would ever accept that.
0: Can you say if that uh, liberal justice was still on the court and voted in this case?
3: Uh, Maybe. Maybe.
0: (laughs) Okay, good answer. And indeed, that brings us to the argument that Justice Neil Gorsuch, Trump appointee, self-professed textualist, and we're going to come to textualism in just a moment, uh, made for the court, joined in this case by the liberals on the court, plus Chief Justice John Roberts, so a six to three decision. Why don't you just lay out that argument for us, just for people who may not have had a chance to read the 175 pages of the opinion yet, because it's more or less the argument that you were advancing 20 years ago.
3: Yeah, it's a very simple argument. The statutory text says the following.
0: Employers
3: cannot, and here I'm pretty much quoting the statute, cannot discriminate against any individual because of such individual's sex. And the argument is very simple. Uh, if an employer has a female employee and the employer fires her, says, Well, I'm really tired of having women in the workplace, that's obviously a violation of the statute. If the employer says, Oh, well, I'm okay with having women employees, but I'm not okay with having women employees who date women, then that is discrimination because of sex. The classification, the regulatory variable, the changes is the sex of the employee. The employee were a man who dated women, that would be fine. So any discrimination against an individual, not a group, but an individual, because of that individual sex, even if it's just a motivating factor, among others, that violates the statute. They could have disposed of it nine to nothing in a three-page opinion where they says this is what the statute says, and here's how it applies to Mr. Bostock or Mr. Zarda, and then for transgender plaintiff Stevens, then it applies in the same sort of way, but with a slightly different analysis.
0: When you say it applies to individuals, but not necessarily to groups, that was an issue that came up at Oral Argument in this case. How do you read the holding here. Would it be lawful under the statute after this interpretation for an employer to say, I don't hire anyone who happens to be gay or lesbian? It seems that that would not be lawful under this holding.
3: I think that would not be lawful. But again, remember, there's no Title VII lawsuit usually until there's an employee who says I was fired or not given a job or for some other reason discriminated against because of my sex,
0: basically. Right.
3: So, yeah, an employer can say that, but wow, that's an employer asking to be sued. That's an employer sort of handing on a silver platter. Here is your settlement. How much do I owe you? <laughs>
0: well, we may see test cases of that sort by employers who, who operate on the basis of principle.
3: The test cases we'll see will not be that at all. Instead, at the end of the opinion, Justice Gorsuch said, uh, at least one of the cases, there was a religious allowance claim raised by the employer. And Justice Gorsuch said that was not an issue on review. We're not going to address it. But then he sort of throws in, hey, bring those lawsuits on. And so that's left hanging. It's like a hanging chad. Where is that going to leave us? So I think those are the kinds of cases that we'll now see that will be test cases of some sort.
0: Just to be clear, I think it's fairly explicit in the opinion about where it's going to leave us, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is overwhelmingly likely to be interpreted to produce an exception to this anti-discrimination principle for an employer or an organization who can make a case of sincere religious motivation. I mean, Gorsuch is now the swing vote on this with Roberts. And it's very hard to imagine, given what he said, that he would reach any other conclusion than the one he already hinted at.
3: I think it's hard to predict how this is going to play out for several reasons. And one reason is that most religious employers do not want to discriminate. And so it's going to be interesting to see where we find employers that want to get out on a limb on this particular issue. But you're right. uh, I think that we're going to see some of those cases. It is perilous to predict exactly what the Supreme Court is going to do with them. But it is very safe to say that Justice Gorsuch is open to these claims, as is Chief Justice Roberts, as are some of the liberals as well. We'll be right back.
1: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: Let's shift now to talking about the issue that's major here for lawyers beyond the huge win for the LGBTQ community, namely the ascendance of the theory of statutory interpretation known as textualism. And to give the listener context... The argument for textualism using that term more or less begins with Justice Scalia and has been the, the cause has been taken up by a group of academics, including my dean at Harvard Law School, John Manning. And you and uh, your co-author at the time, Phil Fricke, were engaged in what I would call an academic battle royale for years with the textualists offering your own alternative, which you guys call dynamic Statutory Interpretation, and others have attached different names to it. I have been watching this with great fascination and attention for many, many years. Now, really, since I was a student, I've always been on your side of the debate. I'm still on your side of the debate. But now the Supreme Court seems to be almost entirely on the other side of the debate. So I wonder if you would start by just giving us a 101 on what you think textualism is, according to its proponents... And then you can tell us why the textualists are wrong, even though in this case, they've given you just what you wanted.
3: Well, Noah, I'm with the spirit of your question. It's very interesting. This is a great debate in the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's entirely a a textual debate, with Gorsuch writing for the majority, Kavanaugh writing for himself in dissent, Alito writing for himself and Thomas in dissent. So textualism, it seems to me, is the dominant mode of discourse in all three of the opinions, but they have different inflections. They all start with the proposition that the only thing that's enacted in law is the text of the statute. The job of the judge is to interpret the text as an ordinary reader would do, full stop. Don't look at legislative history. You don't care if it goes against the statutory purpose, though you might follow some statutory precedents. And there's some division in the textualist camp on that.
0: And just to explain that again for for non-lawyers, the idea is that when you're interpreting a statute, if you're a judge, instead of asking, gee, what did the people who passed this statute think? What did they say to each other? What did they put in the congressional record? What were their purposes? What can we reconstruct about what they thought or should have thought or might have thought? You should ignore all of that according to textualism and just look at the words.
3: Uh, The strictest textualists would say exactly that. And they would say that It doesn't matter subjectively what the enacting legislators thought or what their goal was. All that matters is the way that it's received by the body politic. We, the people, are the audience and ought to control the meaning of the statute. That's their argument. I would characterize Phil Fricke and my approach as a pragmatic approach, and I think that is still the reigning approach in the Supreme Court. And that is that any very hard case of statutory interpretation involves looking at a number of sources, the text of the statute, statutory precedents, and then you also, in our opinion, ought to consider legislative history, agency and regulatory history, and larger norms. Now, I believe the Gorsuch opinion, and this is exactly the argument made by Justice Alito in his dissent, the Gorsuch opinion is a brilliant synthesis of textualism, and what you're calling, and I call, sometimes, dynamic statutory interpretation. Because Alito points out, this is a very wildly evolutive approach to these words. And Alito says, in 1964, if you'd asked a member of Congress, are you protecting women? They said, sure. Are you protecting men sometimes? They might scratch their heads and say, well, maybe. And how about homosexuals? Are you protecting them? And Justice Alito jumps up and down for dozens of pages and said, no, they were considered psychopaths and criminals and all sorts of other things. So he says this cannot be the original ordinary meaning of the statute. And Gorsuch's response is, no, you look at the words and then you apply the words to today's circumstances. Now, here's the step that's missing, but that he and the majority are making between 64, when the statute is passed, and today, when we have the decision, the object of the discussion has changed. Indeed, language has changed. In 1964, if you'd asked a member of Congress, what about those gay people? A member of Congress would have said, I like happy constituents. That's all it would have meant. But if you'd said, what about homosexuals and other sex perverts? Congress says, oh, yeah, they're a very big danger to society and so forth. So literally what's going on in the background, and this is always what's going on with textualism, is that society has changed, language has changed, and they're not unrelated to one another.
0: So let me pause you there, because at this point, I think someone who has not taken the advanced Eskridge course on statutory interpretation, I think might be forgiven for feeling a little confused. Let's walk people through it. The Supreme Court majority here, Justice Gorsuch says, I am a textualist. I am not doing what Eskridge says I am doing. He says, I am not looking at the evolving meaning of the statute. I'm not looking at a changed uh, sociocultural context. I'm just reading the words, and Gorsuch insists, I'm reading them exactly the way a person would have read them had they been exposed to this logic in 1964 when the law was passed. The dissent, Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, two different dissents say, no, that's not true, Gorsuch, you're actually doing the very thing that is bad from our perspective, namely escrid style statutory interpretation that looks beyond the words, and Gorsuch's response is, no, I'm not. The upshot is that all of the opinions for the court, everybody claims that the worst thing you can do is to engage in dynamic statutory interpretation. The official orthodoxy, the stated orthodoxy of all of the justices here, is textualism, 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 textualism ascendant. Now, I hear you making the argument, which is fascinating, that in fact, the majority is not doing textualism. It thinks it's doing textualism, but it's not really doing textualism. And therefore, that the dissenters are correct in their characterization of the majority opinion. And that Gorsuch is just wrong, or possibly, in your view, lying about what he's in fact, doing. So let me ask you a psychological question. Do you really think that Gorsuch, who's trying very hard to take up the mantle of Justice Scalia, is deceived about what he's doing, that he thinks he's doing textualism and he doesn't? Or do you think he's doing something different than that and maybe a little more secretive?
3: Well, I'm not going to psychoanalyze poor Justice Gorsuch, but what I will say is I think it's a synthesis. It's, he's both a textualist and a dynamic interpreter. Let me give your audience a very simple example. 1964, you pass a statute saying no motor vehicles in the park. And there are a number of predictable applications and some close cases. 2020, a Segway is zipping through the park. Well, that didn't exist in 1964. Are you being a dynamic interpreter to say, we're going to apply vehicle to this newfangled gadget? And Scalia would answer, no, that's still textualism. Textualism can be applied to things that happen after 1964. Well, what about things that are existed in 64 but have changed? Motorized wheelchairs. 1964, you know, I said, well, there's some motorized wheelchairs, but we're not going to apply it because it goes so slowly. People with disabilities need them, and so on. In, ni- in 2020, there's a thing called the Bach Auto Super Four which is a motorized wheelchair that looks like a little car that can go up rough terrain and can go pretty fast, 15 to 20 miles an hour, might apply to that. So that's something that existed in 64 but has changed in the intervening however many years it's been since 64. And the same thing is true of gay people. I existed and I was gay in 1964. I would not have called myself gay. I didn't know what that word meant in 1964. Literally, the language to describe people like me is not the same today as it would have been 64. And I'm a different person. I'm like the Segway. I'm either new or I'm like the Bach auto super four. I'm a ramped up version of what I was in 1964. So you can say you're a textualist, but what has changed and how can this not affect text is that people of men and women who have sex or date people of the same sex are now conceptualized completely differently. There's a different language to describe them, and therefore their relationship to that language, discriminate against any individual because of such individual sex, has correlatively changed. So textualism and dynamism at the same time.
0: Let's talk a little bit about where this is all going to go in the future. I am fascinated to see Justice Gorsuch making a bid for the conservative intellectual leadership of the court through a holding that on the surface is being embraced by liberals and will not be at least immediately embraced by conservatives. My own view is that Gorsuch is playing the long game and he expects and believes that conservatives won't be that angry about this opinion in three or four years, that it's liberals who make judicial reputation because most law professors are liberal. That's an unsurprising fact. And most law professors who care about the Supreme Court spend some of our time making judicial reputations. And we're now all going to have to look at Neil Gorsuch, Trump appointee, and say, well, pretty good. You know, he followed his interpretation of the law to a place that did not necessarily match his political preconditions. So liberals will now have to be nice to Gorsuch, whether they like it or not, Conservatives will get over their frustration. Over time, Gorsuch's position as the replacement for Justice Scalia, as the conservative intellectual leader of the court, will be consolidated. That's my hypothesis that that's his game plan. I want to ask you do you think that conservatives will get beyond this opinion and will, especially if there are Religious Freedom Restoration Act or other religious exemptions for religious groups?
3: Well, I would say the conservative reaction has been very mixed. Donald Trump, you know, says he's a conservative, and he praised the decision, says, sounds good to me. Mitt Romney, not a liberal he, said, you know, sounds pretty good. So I would say two things. Number one, is it in the interest of American conservative politics to demonize lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people? 70, 80, 90% of the American people think that sexual orientation and gender identity should not be the basis for losing your job. So I think the country has really moved beyond that, including conservatives, and that's the smart thing for conservatives to do. On the other hand, I think it's a smart thing for conservatives, NOAA, and liberals to sort of say, we should have space for religious employers who need to be accommodated on these kinds of issues. So I think there's gonna be a learning curve for liberals as well. And I'm not gonna psychoanalyze, But I'm going to say this is a smart interpretation of Gorsuch, and he's smart. Here's what he's doing. The academics, the Feldmans and the Eskridges all think and sometimes write. You know, the new textualism, Scalia, Gorsuch, Thomas, it's just simply a shell game. It's a cover for smuggling in right-wing Republican platform views into statutes in the Constitution. Justice Gorsuch, I think his crusade is, no. I am setting forth a rule of law methodology, which will be neutral and which will actually make the country better. Now, Eskridge and Feldman keep saying you cannot have a rule of law methodology, which reaches results that you want to reach and then bends the methodology to reach them. That's not a methodology. That's an ideological position. Gorsuch is saying, I'm not going to be predictable except methodologically predictable. I'm going to be consistent. Surprise! I'm going to be consistent. And that means that you can't count on me based on ideology. So bravo, Neil Gorsuch.
0: Last question, Bill. What's left for the legal wing of the LGBTQ rights movement now? Marriage rights established. Legal equality under the statute, established. Yes, there will be some fights over just how much religious liberty exemptions must exist, but that's sort of after the fact you've won the battle, that's some minor negotiation over the terms of your victory. For the brilliant young LGBTQ lawyers who are out there ready to be at the front lines, what is the issue that they will be working on for the rest of their careers? Or should they, you know, redirect themselves to racial injustice or other topics where, sadly, we've made very, very little systematic progress relative to what's happened in the LGBTQ context?
3: No, a great question. I would not pose it as either or. Racial justice overlaps enormously with LGBT justice. The people in my community who suffer the most tend to be LGBTQ people who are people of color, people without resources, people who are most gender-bending, all of those features. And they are subject to violence. They're subject to discrimination in education. They're subject to discrimination in public accommodations, in housing for the poor. They're subject to harassment and bullying in schools. So most LGBTQ discrimination occurs not for abstract reasons, but because vulnerable people are physically and emotionally attacked and there's no one there to stand up for them. And Glad, the gay and lesbian advocates of Boston, which was the hero in the marriage cases, you know, I talk to Glad and I say, well, what are you all doing? And Glad says, there is as much discrimination and violence as there ever has been. And these people do not have lawyers if we don't come in and try to protect them. So, yes, I think you're doing God's mission to continue to protect the vulnerable. And I think that ought to be the mission going forward, to get statutory and regulatory protections for those people.
0: Bill, I want to thank you not only for your clear analysis and your willingness to talk about ideas and play with them, but also for your extraordinary work that contributed to the outcome Here and for your long dedication to the twin topics of LGBTQ rights and statutory interpretation, which magically and perfectly came together. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Noah. It was a real pleasure.
0: Well, there you have it. A hugely important day in the history of the gay and transgender rights movements in the United States, as explained and described by an expert who has been at the heart of the process. On top of that, we delved into the usually arcane topic of how you should go about interpreting a statute and the debate between textualism, which is now the official orthodox doctrine of just about the entire Supreme Court, and the alternative view, according to which we should do more than just look at the words of the statute. Where we are now is that all of the opinions issued by the Supreme Court, majority and dissent, insist that you should only interpret the Constitution according to its text, but Bill Eskridge not giving up the fight claims that what's really going on is that other factors are still in play. We are going to continue to watch this issue as further debates emerge about exemptions from civil rights law on the basis of religion when it comes to discrimination against gay, lesbian, and transgender people. And maybe, just maybe, someday we'll come back to the topic of statutory interpretation. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, Go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.
2: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.
0: Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit.
1: Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees
0: are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com.